Christ Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Merciful God, you gave your Son to suffer the shame of the cross. Save us from hardness of heart, that seeing him who died for us, we may repent, confess our sin, 
and receive your overflowing love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
Old Testament lesson is taken from the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, the 13th verse, and continuing through the 12th verse of the 53rd chapter. Listen for the word of God to us this day. See, my servant shall prosper, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished by him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole and by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction with his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this first reading of God's holy word. Our epistle lesson is taken from the 10th chapter of Hebrews, preceded by selected verses from the 4th and 5th chapters. Continue to listen for the word of God to us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the covenant I will make with them after this, those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. May we stand under the word of God until we come to understand it.
After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with the police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They then came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest but Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, He denied it and said, One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the cock crowed. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual, ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Jesus went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone to you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. 
From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but the Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Therefore, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, Here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath especially because that Sabbath was a great day of solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. 
Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. For some, Good Friday asks more questions than it answers. When Jesus speaks to the one crucified beside him, perhaps we wonder, what is heaven? What is paradise? When Jesus cries aloud to God in dereliction, anguish over abandonment, do we ask ourselves, what is hell? It is natural, indeed normal, when we come face to face with the mortality of another to confront our own mortality. On a day when death is front and center, seemingly dedicated to the pondering of such questions, it is seemly to turn our attention to weighty matters. Oh, from time to time, these questions come up in casual conversation. We want to know so much about life and eternity, but most of the rest of the time, these questions come up in moments of crisis, the moments when real life demands real answers, when we can no longer hide from the large questions. To grow in faith, is to ask questions of ultimate meaning. And if we strive with these questions, presumably a deeper faith awaits us. But it is not always easy. And it seems at times that even the church cannot speak with unanimity. In the preface to their wonderful book, If God is Love, authors Philip Gully and James Mulholland tell the story of the day that one of them, they never said which one, chose to preach a sermon in a small rural congregation to question his beliefs about hell. He had been in this new call for about three months, and then he received a telephone call that afternoon from the church board wanting to meet him. They quizzed him about his beliefs. He told them what he thought. And to make a long story short, they promptly fired him. He called his wife as he left the church. Great news, we get to sleep in next Sunday. That very afternoon, the phone rang. It was another congregation in the same county. Are you the pastor that doesn't believe in Satan and hell? The phone call asked. Yes, he answered. Great, went the voice on the other end of the phone. We'd like to know if you would become our pastor. People have strong feelings about heaven and hell, life and death. You do not have to agree with what I will say over the next while. I take my studies seriously and I will tell you what I believe to be true. But belonging to a church does not mean that you always agree with the pastor about everything, indeed even on matters as important to thee as these. It means being a part of family of faith that is on a journey together with Jesus Christ which means that we can ask our toughest questions on the hardest days. 
we will start with a brief history of what the Bible chiefly says about heaven and hell. For those of you who were here last Good Friday, some of this will be review, but some of it will be new, as you asked last year if I might go a bit deeper on these matters. When we take our questions seriously, it is useful to review what we actually know. Then we will analyze some of the imagery that we have received, and we will see whether it stands up under close examination under the microscope of the gospel. And then finally, we must end with hope, because otherwise, why bother? Even on a day like Good Friday, the gospel always brings hope. If it does not, it is not the gospel. Here's what the Bible says. In the Old Testament, heaven and hell are primarily the same place. It's not particularly well defined, but it is referenced quite a bit. In this understanding, there is really no conception of punishment or reward. The Old Testament conception of life after death is, frankly, shadowy. The ancient Hebrew way of transmitting truth was to use poetry and metaphor, and so Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament, is only defined in the loosest of terms. Sometimes Sheol is a place, such as in Psalm 139, when the psalmist thinks of making her bed in Sheol. Sometimes Sheol is a state of being, such as in 1 Samuel, when David lies down with his ancestors. And sometimes, such as in Job and Jonah, Sheol takes on anthropomorphic qualities when one is rescued from the hand of Sheol or when one emerges from the womb of Sheol. The Old Testament is comprised of myriad authors, and most contribute to the metaphors that we use to understand Sheol. It is a shadowy place where the dead experience a shadowy existence. We don't know much about it, but we know that it is. That's one Old Testament understanding, and it is far away the dominant understanding. But there is another understanding, and this one looks a lot more like hell in the sense that we have probably encountered it being described, and it has a physical address. Its coordinates are 31.66667 by 35.233333. Those are the coordinates of a physical location. It is the Valley of Hinnom. You have perhaps heard it called Gehenna, as I did last Good Friday. What I did not say last year is that Gehenna is a cursed place, and the reason for its curse is very plain. In the Valley of Hinnom, the Hebrews engaged in an idolatrous 
practice expressly forbidden by God. They worshipped the Canaanite god Moloch. Moloch was the god who demanded the sacrifice of children, sacrifices that Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, had explicitly forbidden. So the valley was cursed, and the curse persisted right up into the time of Jesus, to the time of the New Testament. And because it was cursed, the only use for the land was to be a trash dump for Jerusalem. There are worms, there are fires, as one expects in a trash dump, where things are decaying and being incinerated. We encounter Gehenna in the New Testament, primarily in those times when Jesus describes the result of remaining tied to a destructive way of life. Deliberately to choose the path of alienation and disintegration is to push oneself to a place of torture. I have only limited time to make this point, so I'm going to make it as succinctly as I can, and you can ask me any follow-up questions that you want to. I know there are people who will claim that God sends you to hell if you are bad, but that's not primarily what the Bible says. Not unless we throw the author's intentions to the wind and insist on interpreting metaphor literally. And perhaps most importantly, that's not how Jesus describes Gehenna. Jesus, who a rabbi, knew all the history of Gehenna, and he would have understood it as a metaphor for what happens when we can't or won't change course from a path that is destroying ourselves spiritually or physically. It is a place of isolation, yes, perhaps by one's own rejection of wholeness, but also, perhaps, by circumstances beyond one's control. It can be in the here and now, and in eternity. But it is the questions about eternity that are beyond what the Bible answers. But let me be very clear about this. Jesus does not present it with a tit-for-tat aspect to it. Jesus never presents it as turn or burn. I know that a transactional way of thinking about atonement is deeply seductive because it is easy to motivate others and even ourselves by fear, by appealing to a belief that there is an action that we can check off to earn God's favor, to assure us of our eternal destiny. But let me ask you this, a critical question as you contemplate a transactional notion of atonement. Does any part of that sound like good news? To you. We're going to come back to the good news, but first let's go through a quick rundown on heaven, or perhaps more accurately, on what happens to us when we die. The Old Testament really only understands Sheol in terms of a place of the dead, and it is absent of suffering. The New Testament, however, does give us some striking imagery. The first 
thing to note from the New Testament is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are presented in more or less synonymous ways. The kingdom of God is the state of being in a restored shalom, of being returned to God's intention for peaceable well-being in all of creation. It has a temporal component. We can participate in the kingdom of God right now. And it has an eternal component. God's coming restoration of creation. Jesus constantly says, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is before you. Just as suffering is an outcome of inability or unwillingness to turn aside from self-destructive paths, so too wholeness is the outcome of embracing God's way of redemption in the world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has to do with encountering the goodness of God at work in the world. It's not in a far-off, distant future. It's now. It's in this moment. It is in each of our lives. Our imaginations also take flight as to what happens to us when we die if we consider what Jesus said to the bandit crucified next to him. The thief is asking to be remembered, and Jesus assures him that that very day they would be together in paradise. Jesus doesn't define heaven in this moment, but he points to a future that is filled with hope, a future that he has already prefigured with words about his father's house, a future filled with peace. Again, the details are sparse, I suspect, intentionally so. Finally, in the New Testament, we are blessed with the words of the epistles to shine greater light into what awaits us. Some of these words you have heard set to powerful music. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed. We will be raised imperishable. I know this probably sounds a little clinical and didactic, and most folks are accustomed to hearing about heaven and hell in much more colorful terms. Perhaps you remember the early colonialist preacher Jonathan Edwards' famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's the one that involves a spider dangling over a fiery pit. Or perhaps the words of Dante, Abandon hope, all ye that enter herein. Personally, I've never forgotten a line from James Joyce. Consider what must be the foulness of the air of hell. There are any number of vivid images that we have encountered about what happens to us when they die, and they come from a number of sources, from revivalist preaching, from poetry, from Islamic literature, and occasionally even from the Bible if we are willing willfully to misunderstand the intention of apocalyptic portions such as Revelation. 
And for having the same is true, and throw into the mix a goodly portion of gospel hymns. They are full of vivid, vivid images. But are they right? Well, yes and no. More no than yes, by the way, but I would quickly say that whatever we can conceive of God's intentions for us, they may well be different from what we imagine, but they will not be less than we can imagine. God's reality will never be less than we can imagine. The risk we run when we try to say too much is that we say it wrong. But here's what I believe about what happens when we die. I believe that when Jesus said God so loved the world, he really meant the world. And I believe that when Paul says nothing in life or death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, he really means nothing. And I believe that when the creed says he descended into hell, it means that Jesus experienced all the pain and suffering of humanity so that in his resurrection lies the hope of our own. And I also believe that in every age we have tried to understand the love of God through the lens of our own experience. And that means to reach us, God has used the language of the people. So it is that in the letter to the Hebrews, the author employs the language of the people in order to understand, able the people to understand who Jesus is and how he brings redemption. The author uses images the people would understand. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is high priest. Jesus is king. The author uses that language and then promptly turns it on its head, turning each to the task of redemption. And so we encounter not a prophet who screams doom, not a priest who demands sacrifice, not a king who dictates from on high, but instead a prophet who whispers hope, a king who serves, and a high priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. John Calvin wrote this, Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for all our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. Such is the nature of his rule, and he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. Humility demands that I not try to say what cannot be said with certainty. The Bible is full of the imagery of God as a persistent lover, as a compassionate father, as a nursing mother, as a good shepherd, as the fullness of all that is good. And we should never expect less. Indeed, from the Gospel of John today, we are reminded that the way God will draw all people in is through the sacrificial love of God shown in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
All through the Bible, the people of God are growing in their understanding of who God is and what God wants from creation and how it is that God loves us. And the truth is the Bible skin spends scant little time on hell and not that much more on heaven. And dear saints, that is because as urgent as these questions may be to us, they are not chiefly the questions the Bible seeks to answer. The Bible is not a primer on reward and punishment. The Bible is a love letter. It is a love letter from God to humankind, and the verses of the sonnet speak not of terror, but of eternal love. That is the type of love that runs deeper than death. That is the love that overcomes death. The mystery that is Good Friday, in which God moves in humanity to restore us to wholeness, cannot be explained any more than we can explain what it means for Jesus to descend to hell. And we should not say what we do not know for certain. But we know this. If we looked at Scripture like evidence in a trial, the scales of justice would be weighted off their axis with the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness, mercy, grace, and love. And that is what changes everything. That is what moves us from crucifixion to resurrection. That is what offers us forgiveness and enables us to forgive one another. The gospel must always be good news, even on a day such as Good Friday. God means for this forgiveness, this mercy, this grace, this love to be our way of life. The letter to the Hebrews also writes, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So on a day like today, one full of such ultimate questions, God's intention for us is to go in peace in the assurance of Jesus Christ to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let us pray. Dear people of God, God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, that all who believe in him might be delivered from the power of sin and death and become heirs with him of eternal life. Let us pray for the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of Christ throughout the world, for its unity in witness and service, for all church leaders and ministers and the people whom they serve, for all the people of this presbytery, for all the Christians in this community, for those who will yet be baptized, that God will confirm the church in faith, increase it in love, and preserve it in peace. Eternal God, by your spirit, the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified. Receive our prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in our vocation and ministry we may truly and devoutly serve you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray for all nations and peoples of the earth and for those in authority among them, for the President of the United States and the Congress and Supreme Court, for the members and representatives of the United Nations, for all who serve the common good, that by God's help they may seek justice and truth and live in peace and concord. Almighty God, kindle, we pray, in every heart the true love of peace and guide with your wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that justice and peace may increase until the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray for all who suffer and are afflicted in body or in mind, for the hungry and homeless, for the destitute and the oppressed, for all who suffer persecution, doubt, and despair, for the sorrowful and bereaved, for prisoners and captives and those in mortal danger, for victims of violence and gun violence in particular, that God will comfort and relieve them and grant them knowledge of God's love, and stir up in us the will and patience to minister to their needs. Gracious God, the comfort of all who sorrow, the strength of all who suffer, hear the cry of those in misery and need. In their affliction, show them your mercy, and give us, we pray, the strength to serve them for the sake of him who suffered for us, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Merciful God, creator of the peoples of the earth and lover of our souls, have compassion on all who do not know you as you are revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. Let your gospel be preached with grace and power. Turn the hearts of those who hear it and bring home those of your flock who have gone astray, that there may be one flock under one shepherd, Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us commit ourselves to God and pray for the grace of a holy life, that with all who have departed this life and died in the peace of Christ and those whose faith is known to God alone, we may be accounted worthy to enter the fullness of the joy of our Lord and to receive the crown of life in the day of resurrection. Eternal God of unchanging power and light, look with mercy on your whole church. Bring to completion your saving work so that the whole world may see the fallen lifted up, the old made new, and all things brought to perfection by him through whom all things were made, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And finally, hear us as we pray for all those things the Lord our God would have us ask with the words our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>